0: Thank you so much for being a listener of the Deep Believer Show. We love our listeners. We pray for our listeners and we love to hear from our listeners. So if you have anything you'd like to say, if you have any testimonies or if you have any questions, leave us a voice message. We'd love to hear from you. Again, we would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for being a listener of the Deep Believer Show. Hi, everyone. This is Jennifer Bagnashi with Deep Believer. Today, our guest was an extremely shy child, so shy that his teachers thought he had a reading disorder. On top of that, he was an extreme introvert. Because of that, the devil liked to take jabs at him, but he didn't realize it was the devil. Years later, he became a minister, wrote three fantastic, fantastic books on shutting up the devil. And he talks about that with us. Kyle Winkler, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. Honored to be with you today.
0: Kyle, so you wrote three books, but before we get into that, tell us, were you raised as a Christian child or how was your upbringing?
1: Yeah, my upbringing was very devout religion. I was raised Catholic, you know, and anybody that that has been raised devout Catholic like that, like not in kind of name only. Sometimes people are are that way, but my family was very devout. We didn't miss a Sunday. We didn't miss what was called a holy day of obligation, which those are extra days that you're supposed to go to mass, as it's called, and went to one of the Catholic schools. So very into it. And I understood that Jesus died for my sins. I I understood a lot of the Bible stories. I would say growing up I had a head knowledge at least of them. But what I didn't know, I didn't know the power that Jesus offered. I didn't know how personal he could be. I really didn't know God's unconditional love. So really what God was for me growing up was more of a taskmaster that was kind of making his list and checking it twice to see if I was living up to just doing everything right. It's certainly in that denomination, there's a lot of things that you have to do just right. You have to hold out your hands for communion just right. You have to genuflect or kneel just right. Lots lots of things. So I just really grew up believing that God was out to look at all the things that I was doing wrong and then punish me for them. And as a matter of fact, I remember hearing in our schools and from the teachers. Oh, you better watch out. Otherwise God's going to get you back. So I don't consider that real Christianity. I mean, not, I'm not saying that Catholics can't be Christians, but what I'm saying is, as I understood it about God wanting to punish me for my every sin and, and just being a taskmaster, I don't really believe that's what the true gospel is. So I don't believe I became a Christian until I understood how much he loved me and the personal relationship he wanted to have with me, which happened at 16 years old.
0: Kyle, so did you fear God?
1: Yeah, I feared God, not in the healthy way. Like definitely the Bible talks about having a fear of the Lord, which I believe is more of an awe of the Lord and certainly a healthy reverence for God and for his power. I feared God in the unhealthy way, which was just as I was saying, thinking that he was going to zap me dead for my every mistake. So Of course, nobody wants to be in a close relationship with somebody that they think is going to zap them dead for their every mistake. So there's a distance there. Jesus really was just a kind of a plaster of Paris statue hanging on a wooden beam up in the front of the church that I went to. There was there was nothing personal. There was really nothing loving about him in my mind, which just kept him at a distance. I just didn't have that intimate relationship that the Lord desires to have with us because of my wrong beliefs that I had about him.
0: How did your parents raise you in this? So did they talk a lot about Jesus with you, or was it just, like you said, rituals at Mass?
1: They talked about God with me probably as best as they knew how, from how they were raised and how their parents were raised. It was very much within the within the structure of that denomination. There was There was no personal aspect to it is the best way I can say it. You know, prayers were always very scripted and they were the same prayers over and over. It wasn't as I have come to learn to pray. And most of us Protestants have learned to pray is, you know, just saying, Dear Father, thank you for and and, you know, just doing it out of out of our own heart. And so very ritualistic. I don't I don't blame any anyone for it because they didn't know any better as i said it was it was just how they were taught and how their parents were taught and how their parents were taught so they certainly are in a different place today because of every where the lord has taken me and and where he's even taken them since then but at that time definitely it was kind of just going through the motion sunday was a check box to make sure you were in the Sunday service. And if you did that, then, oh, you were pleasing to God. And if you didn't, then, oh no, you better watch out because God's going to take some opportunity to get you back for that. And ju- just every little thing that you didn't do right, that's kind of the impression that you got.
0: So let's switch over to your shyness. You were extremely shy. Tell us about that. And why were you so shy?
1: Yeah, it's probably the earliest feeling memory that I have. It's just this feeling that I didn't belong all the way back to potty training is where I take it. I just felt like I was an outcast that didn't fit in, that that I was a reject basically is, is kind of how it, what it ended up getting into. But because of that insecurity and that feeling like I didn't belong back, into preschool, as far back as I can remember, I cried and I cried until my mommy let me out of my first year of preschool. Preschool dropout, you're listening to one right here. And in elementary school, they actually mistaken that for a reading problem because they would call on me to read aloud and I would just freeze up because I was just so afraid to talk around anybody that I didn't know like really, really well. So I'd freeze up when they call on me to read aloud and they thought that was a reading problem. So they put me in this special bus with like a handful of other kids and it's called like a remedial reading program or something like that. And that was confusing to my parents because at home, in the comfort of my home, around people that I had grown up with, I could read just fine and I could actually read pretty well. But at school, around people that I felt like I didn't fit in with, that I didn't belong with, that insecurity caused me just to freeze up and caused me to be almost paralyzingly timid is is what i would say i don't know why except for i mean my natural personality is an introvert and i think until until i learned how to kind of overcome some of the extremes of it i think every personality has its extremes that can tend towards some not so good things, I guess. Mine was out of out of an introverted personality, mine was I was just so extremely shy. And I also believe there's spiritual warfare involved, for sure. I think if you look at at what you dealt with in childhood especially, that's a pretty good indicator of kind of where your destiny is headed because that's why the enemy is really coming after you in that particular issue or situation so much. He's trying to thwart God's plans for your life. So I think the enemy somehow understood where God was wanting to take me because I talk today, that's what I do. So he was trying to kind of keep me from doing what I'm doing today. So I think that was part of it as well.
0: Amen. So tell me, what was going through your mind when you heard that you had to ride a special school bus, that you may have a reading disability? What went through your mind?
1: I think that just reinforced all the more that I was someone who was wrong, that I was someone who didn't belong, because now not only did I feel like I didn't belong, but here's real tangible evidence. The teachers are saying that you can't read well. They're putting you in a special group. Of course, kids didn't want to talk with the kid who didn't talk, or they didn't want to be friends with the kid who didn't talk, and I didn't know how to make friendships in those days either, so I was the one chosen last and picked last for everything. I was... Sometimes I would hide in certain places around the playground at recess time where I wouldn't have to be seen because I didn't want people to see me as the loner, the one not playing with anybody. I even went to the extent of whenever there were class parties or like parent or grandparent days at school. I wouldn't tell my parents because I was afraid of them coming in, seeing me in that pitiful condition. So my mom ended up, having a lot of issues because she thought that that was me being ashamed of her. But what it was, what she didn't realize until much later is that it was me being ashamed of me. I didn't want her to see me. So yeah, it it just created all the more mind games and really solidified the shame in me that not only do you feel like you are wrong, but you are someone who is wrong.
0: So did you ever tell her that's the reason why
1: I think eventually believe it or not, she heard about it on a tv interview that i did because i had i had forgotten about it for so many years that that was one of the symptoms and then as i was kind of talking it over and i think maybe writing one of my books or something and really going through some of the things that that i had dealt with that popped back into my mind is that was something that i did and then it came up on an interview program and I said it, and I think that that was probably the first time, may have been when I was in my upper 20s or low 30s, shortly after my first book came out, where she heard me say that on that program, and so that was probably a real light bulb moment for her, (laughs) that, wow, it wasn't me that he was ashamed of, it was him, and it was.
0: Tell me this, you said that you were an introvert, right? A lot of people are introverts, a lot, right? And some introverts feel like there's something wrong with them. What would you say to those introverts who feel as if, okay, there's some, how come I'm not as outgoing as everyone else? How come I can't uh, feel comfortable in a crowd of people? How come I can't just speak to somebody? What, What would you tell them?
1: Absolutely. For years, I thought that my personality, well after I became a Christian, like a decade after I became a Christian, I thought my personality was was the devil trying to get in the way of what God was having me do. So I was like casting out every introverted spirit I could think of. Introversion, go in Jesus' name. And I wasn't going anywhere. I still remained who I was. And certainly, as I said, I had learned things as I started to learn about my identity in Christ. I had learned things that I wasn't so paralyzingly shy anymore. I wasn't... Afraid to take a phone call, I could finally go into a room without fear and trembling, a room of strangers, but I still was an introvert. And so I still thought, oh, this is getting in the way of what God wants me to do. And so I was trying all of these things to change. And here's what God said to me, which is what I would say to other people He said, Kyle, stop trying to change that. He said, I gave you that personality. He said, I gave you that personality to do something that other people can't do with a different personality. God said, use the gift of you. He said, you have a personality, a style, and a story to reach people that others can't with theirs. Use the gift of you. And so when that really clicked, that my personality, like in its purest form, was not something given to me by the enemy, but was actually something given me by the Lord, I really leaned into it. And I really, instead of starting to despise it, I started to maximize it. And I realized it's that personality that enables me to write the books how I write them. It's this personality that enables me to preach the messages that I do. And so much of what I do in the ministry and the way I relate to people comes out of the blessings, the advantages of being an introvert. I tend to mine for deep insights. The, The time that I spend alone time, you know, introverts, we are charged by our alone time. That's what makes us an introvert. Well, that alone time I often spend with the Lord, that's what causes me to seek the things that I seek out, which comes out in my writing and comes out in my preaching. So I really have learned how to celebrate it and maximize it And just realize that, yes, other people can do things that I can't. There are other people that are better networkers. There are other people that are better with small talk. But I can do things that other people can't do. So it's all part of celebrating who you are as a gift, as a part of the body of Christ. And that really, when I finally got that, my greatest anointing, my greatest authority, it all flows out of finally being okay with who God made me
0: and you got to that point, and this changed when you turned 16. Tell us what happened when you turned 16, and your friends took you somewhere.
1: Yeah, raised in that denomination of believing that God was just out to get me, and I also had all of this shame, all of this insecurity, so I switched to public school my freshman year, and I was around people of different faiths and something in me i don't know what it was something in me made me think well maybe i would like to try out a different christian faith a different kind of a church i don't know why i was just something was stirring in me and so some friends who went to a church across the river in illinois i lived in missouri at the time and it was like 20 minutes away or so They invited me to this Wednesday night youth group at their church, which all I knew is it was non-denominational. That's all I knew at the time. I had no idea. I mean, that was even just a whole other world. I had no idea of what that even meant, really. But they invited me, and the first few times I came up with an excuse because I wanted to go, but I was scared. And finally, the fourth time, I couldn't think of an excuse. So I held out the phone from my head, trying to think of one, couldn't think of one, and said, okay... My mom said I can go, and so I I walked into that church on a Wednesday night, January 2001. And it turns out it wasn't just a non-denominational church, but it was a charismatic, non-denominational church. And from the way they sang to the way they spoke, I mean, they they just relayed a Jesus who was powerful, who was personal, who was interested in me, and there was no warm-up period for me. I mean, some people going from where I went from to that overnight, kind of, they have to figure it out and have to work it out. Not me. I was like the shy, insecure, shame-ridden person that walked into that church, saw a God spoken about in a way that had power for my life and could help me. And so I wanted it all. I mean, I was like, pour it all on Jesus. Whatever you got, give it to me. And that started That started a handful of years of difficulty in the household because my parents didn't understand it. And it was very taboo in the family and very taboo in our small town, which was predominantly probably 70% Catholic and, and or 80% or more. And so... Nobody knew what to do with it at the time. And so that that's really a whole other story of everybody kind of coming to terms with what God was doing in my life. But that did start a change in me. Like, it wasn't everything. I mean, that started a decade-long process, but it was a real change in me to where I started to read God's word for myself, and I started to understand what God was saying as if he was speaking to me and really i started to understand who i was in christ i underst- started to understand that i was loved i started to understand that i was accepted and that that really was a big thing because i believe for so many years i was nothing but a reject and now i saw in god's word that he chose me Ephesians says that i was accepted in the beloved And so I started to understand over time that God's word was more real than what I feel and no longer a reject, but accepted no longer unloved, but loved, no longer wrong, but right. And that started to do something in me in a big way.
0: When you tell me this, I'm thinking about you walking into this charismatic church and you're, you know, timid in a way, I'm sure. And you leave and God I feel like it's a supernatural thing how god supernaturally changed you he didn't change you to an extrovert but he took away the shyness how did he take away the shyness i i feel like this is amazing because so many people feel as if um being so close off is who they are um and that's who that's how god made them but earlier you mentioned how god gave you the personality of being an introvert but not so much being super shy, but just, you know, the way that introverts work, but tell us, how did you realize that things were changing? Did you feel immediately that you weren't so shy anymore? How did, how did that change? And and was it gradual? Was it gradual or was it overnight?
1: It was definitely a gradual layer by layer thing that, that really spanned over a decade for me. I don't think it has to for most people, but there was a lot of religion that I had to unlearn. There was a lot of things that I had to go through, especially from childhood and and not, not traumas in the sense of I was never abused. I had a good relationship at home, but I think you could say that I was bullied in certain ways. And I think you could say that certainly Things that kids said about me and all of that stuff that really got into my mind and warped my mind from years of hearing that stuff had to be unlearned. My mind had to be deprogrammed from a lot of that stuff. So I didn't really see the change as much in the moment as looking back in hindsight. Like I definitely remember in high school, you know, maybe a year or two into this newfound faith. I was starting to take more opportunities for some small leadership roles. Like I remember joining a Christian club at the high school, which was kind of a big thing for me because I didn't want to be part of any kind of club years ago. I mean, I ran away from the baseball field when my parents would go on vacation and they would want to drop me off. Like I remember these hotels having these special programs for the kids. I would run out of those. I didn't want to be part of anything like that. And so suddenly I was taking opportunities to join things where there were a bunch of people that I didn't know. And even in the youth group that I was a part of, I was taking opportunities to kind of have more leadership roles. And so that was something new that as as I look back, I realize, wow, something is changing in me. There were still some mind games and there were still triggers and people could say things at that time that that would still send me off into, into kind of a three week funk over some of the things that they'd say. But at least the first step was happening, which was I was coming out of my shell. And that just was taking place as I was getting the word of God into me as it related to who I was in Christ. That was just hearing the word and understanding Jesus is personal. That was really step number one, which really grew me from that point, really in, into my college years. And then after college years was kind of another phase where where I really had to begin to identify with what the word of God said and really make my I am. That's kind of how I say it. I had to change my I am to match what God said about me. And really had to go through kind of a mind-renewing process even to reprogram my mind from all of the ways that it was programmed in childhood. So that was that was the kind of the second phase of really breaking through a lot of this stuff. But to your point that you mentioned at the beginning of your question is That never changed me from being an introvert because, as I said, that is what God made me. But it did take away the stuff that I don't think has to go with being an introvert, which was the the paralyzing fear and the insecurity and the anxiety and the depression. Those aren't part of being an introvert. Yes, the enemy will sometimes capitalize on certain things about you and push you in those directions like he did me in childhood. But God's word broke those things off over time. But I still remained who I was and I still am to this day. And it's what makes me me. And I celebrate that now.
0: So I want to go back to a few things you said earlier. You mentioned that you had to unlearn the religion or not the religion, but unlearn some things that you were taught. Um, in your prior faith, so to say, and I find that that is common in a lot of people who are in a different, um, who are in different religions or or religions who are kind of similar to Christianity. Where when they become a Christian, they actually have to unlearn certain things that they were taught about Jesus and about their identity and about the Word of God. Could you just tell us a little bit about the things that you had to unlearn?
1: Yeah, I had to unlearn that God was not mad at me or that God was mad at me. Rather, I had to learn that he wasn't mad at me because I learned that he was mad at me. So I had to unlearn that, if that makes sense. I had to unlearn that God was punishing me. I had to unlearn this idea that I was a still a horrible sinner, even though I was saved. Um, I had to unlearn that I needed to be afraid of everything, that just because I felt it, that it was true. Even in in my book, Shut Up Devil, you know, I go through, it's, it, it's all about shutting down the 10 lies behind every battles you face. Well, each one of those represent one of the 10 lies that I even go through in the book because they're what I had to learn. And then I've I've found, as I've been in ministry now for just about a decade, is that these are things that so many other people wrestle with too, regardless really of the denomination they came out of. It's just religion influenced by the enemy, I'm convinced. It's religion that tells you that God is angry. It's religion that tells you that you're still this horrible person well after you are a Christian. It's religion that tells you that God is punishing you. And in order to not be punished, you have to work all of it off. You have to do, 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 earn, 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 earn yourself into the ground practically. And you can never do enough. You can never earn enough. So that was all ingrained in me from the tradition I came out of. But it's also just ingrained in me from the world. You know, in Romans 12, 2, Paul says not to be conformed with the pattern of the world. And part of the pattern of the world is that you have to do to get, you have to achieve to succeed. And so we treat our relationship with God in that way. And certainly I had my seasons of doing that. And that really messed me up all the more. So it was, it was this deprogramming process of deprogramming from lies that I had picked up from religion lies that I had picked up from when life let me down lies that I had told myself lies that feelings and fears and failures had put into me a bunch of lies that I had to learn how to deprogram my mind from using the truth of God's word so that I could have what he said that I already had and I could really experience who. He said, I already was in Christ.
0: So Kyle, you mentioned two things that I want to go back on. One was rejection and the other one is depression. And these are huge topics right now. With rejection, you said that neuroscience suggests that rejection is tied to something. Could you elaborate on that, please?
1: When I was really studying this for my books and an e-course that I did and just really figuring out me in a lot of ways, too. It's fascinating what scientists, psychologists, you know, just people who study the design of the mind say is that when you get rejected, it activates the same part of the brain as when you actually experience physical pain. So what happens is rejection can feel like a sucker punch to the gut, literally, because that part of the brain That is activated in physical pain is activated in rejection. So what that ends up doing as you've been rejected over and over again, and you come to associate that kind of pain with the situations that would typically reject you, your body gets into what you would call fight or flight mode, where it says... I don't want to experience that kind of pain again. And this is an experience that would typically result in that kind of pain. So avoid, run away, do something else besides that. So that is why people get a fear of rejection. It is literally that your brain has become programmed. Your brain has literally gotten warped by experiences of rejection so much that now even the hint of it, the suggestion of it, the potential of it, the imagination of it is enough to get your body to say, no, don't even go into that situation because it's only going to happen again. And you don't want to feel that kind of pain. So that's why as I got older and part of my process, I remember if I would walk into a room of strangers and I saw people laughing in the corner of the room, there was this trigger that would happen to where it would take me back to where people were laughing at me in childhood. So suddenly I would kind of go back to, oh, they must be laughing at me. Or even if somebody said something like a keyword, it would, it would hit that same thing where it would be like, oh, I remember that. That meant I was a reject. That meant rejection. So avoid that. It was this constant fear that I had. And it was all because of of what all of that did in my mind after years, after years, after years. Pathways were created. That's the neuroscience of it. You feel something, you feel something, you feel something, or you hear something, you hear something, whatever. You experience something, often enough, there's actually a literal pathway that is made in your brain to where whenever you see something similar again, it goes down that pathway. So you have to learn how to rewire your brain, deprogram your brain, renew your mind, whatever you want to call it, just different phrases for the same thing. So that those things no longer trigger you to go down those old pathways, but you can actually rewire and renew your mind for positivity and for confidence and positive expectation instead of all of that other negative junk that you used to go through. And certainly that's what the Lord took me through.
0: It sounds like what you're saying is that all those things that the devil put into your mind about yourself goes into your subconscious. So when certain things are tr- happens, you're triggered. So those come out of your subconscious little box and then it's activated. Now, would you say that uh, this is spiritual? Do you believe that um, the feeling of holding on to rejection or the feeling of not being able to let go of rejection or even the fear of rejection, fear, I guess, would you say that these are spirits? Do you believe that um, rejection or the fear of rejection is a spirit?
1: I think it can be both. I think there is, there can be a spirit attached to it that could be delivered through certain types of um, deliverance processes or prayers and things like that. But also the deliverance process is the renewal of the mind and it is just unprogramming your mind from, from natural things, I suppose. But regardless of whether it's a devil or whether it is a product of just a bunch of experiences that have happened that have reshaped your brain, It doesn't matter. I think that the enemy is in the root of it from the beginning because he knows how God designed us. He knows how our mind works. And so he kickstarts and I think he orchestrates things in our lives that will cause our minds and our bodies to react in certain ways in order to create these what would be called strongholds in us. That's, That's what a stronghold at its basic definition is it is a mental, it is a mind stronghold. And that's what the enemy does. He perverts God's good designs. God made our minds to be moldable. But what the enemy does is with bad situations in our fallen, broken world, he perverts God's designs so that it does something that God never intended to hold us back into a stronghold of negativity. So in one way or another, the enemy is behind it, in my opinion.
0: I agree. So let's talk about depression. I mean, this is a huge right now. I know in America, I don't know in other parts of the world. I'm sure there are obviously, but in depression, I mean, they're passing out pills left and right. And, you know, kids are in therapy and there's suicide issues. So you mentioned that you were just so bound by depression.
1: I would say that I didn't experience ongoing what some people would consider clinical depression or just long-term seasons of depression. What I experienced were more short-term bouts of maybe the better way to put it is extreme discouragement and just times of wishing that I was never born. I remember frequently at night crying, just wishing that I was not even in existence. I never had suicidal thoughts or anything like that, so I don't want to over kind of exaggerate that or anything. But but there definitely was this sense of ongoing grief of why am I even here? What good am I here for? That type of stuff. And that just then compounds into more shame and more discouragement and just more insecurity. And so it, it just, it was this vicious cycle really of I started out not feeling like I belonged, feeling like a reject, then that caused me to be quiet and shy and awkward which made me get rejected and then I saw myself get rejected which only affirmed that I am a reject and that affirmation of rejection then just came back and played into the fears of rejection which just around and around and around and around it it went and that created not just bouts of depression but of course I think Loneliness is a big part of that. People struggle with that a lot these days, which isn't really about the amount of people you're around. But loneliness stems from not feeling like you are known amongst the people that you're around. So there was extreme lonely periods for me. There was anxiety periods for me. There was, as I've been saying, a whole lot of shame, I think was the underlying thing. So It just fuels, that type of thing just fuels about every negative emotion and mind game that you can think of.
0: I'm really glad you elaborated on that. So once you turn 16, you gave your life to Jesus. Once you gave your life to Jesus, you learned your identity in Jesus Christ. And once you learned your identity in Jesus Christ, you begin to get revelation about the power that you have over the devil. And that gets us to your show and your book shut up devil this shut up devil show we see right here on your screen right now tell us about what you learned about the devil
1: yeah so as you see everything i kind of do right now from the from the show to the app to the book i mean everything is is shut up devil branded right now and it is it's organic out of me because it is part of my story because As I share in the book, I think the very first chapter, it's titled The Slanderer. And I go through how the enemy works, and one of the first things I show people is that his name devil in Greek literally is diabolos, which means slanderer. And slanderer is the act of making a false statement in order to destroy somebody's reputation. See, as a Christian, what I had to learn, and what took me probably almost a decade to fully learn, I mean, it was, as I've been saying, it was a process, is when you say yes to Jesus, you have a nature change. So your old nature of sinner is cut out of you and you are now given the nature of Jesus, the nature of God. No longer sinner, but as Second Corinthians 5.21 says, the righteousness of God. And with that comes all kinds of other qualities. Chosen and made new and made whole and so many things about who Jesus is, you get to claim as your identity. Well, the enemy as slander is out to destroy your reputation. So his lies are particularly aimed to get you not to believe what God says about you, not to believe who you are in Christ. So as I started to look back at my life, And even my life since I was a Christian, and even the things that I battled after I was saved, I saw a common theme. It was always the enemy trying to talk me out of what and who God said I was, all so that I would either shrink back in fear, shrink back in shame, shrink back in just the feeling of not being good enough or so that I would try to earn and wear myself out trying to earn what God already said I had and who he already said I was. Because if you if you don't know who you are in Christ, if you don't know what God says about you, what Jesus did on the cross and what that made you, then you will spend your time, talent, and treasure trying to prove something that Jesus already proved, trying to do something that Jesus already did, and trying to be someone that... Jesus already made you to be and that's part of what the enemy slander is all about. If he can't keep you from being saved and that's goal number 1 for him, then his next goal is he wants to keep you from living saved. And that is what I realized. The devil's work in my life was as slander. He was lying to me about who I was in order to hold me back, really in order me to hold me back from doing what I'm doing today. And so when I realized that, I just kind of made it my mission that that I am going to shout this from the rooftops, and I am going to make sure, do my best to make sure that the enemy and his lies don't work that way in as many people's lives as I can possibly reach. And so that's what all of this is all
0: about. Amen. Well, I mean, I noticed that you mentioned two things. One was your identity in Christ. Could you tell the viewers watching, because a lot of people have no idea what their identity in Christ is, could you tell them what God says about them? Because they might not even know. And people watching, please read your Bible. And the Lord tells you who you are and what you're capable of through him. So Kyle, could you just tell us right now, what does God say about us? And could you give us some scripture?
1: Yeah, I'll start out with scripture, actually. I think the most foundational here is... Second Corinthians 517, it says anyone who belongs to Christ. And that means anyone who has said yes to Jesus, as in, yes, Jesus, I believe you are God's son. I believe you did what you said you did. You died and you resurrected for the forgiveness of my sins. The Bible says anyone who is in Christ has been made a new person. Everything old has passed away. All things have been made new. So the moment you said yes to Jesus, a spiritual identity change in you happened. As I said, through my story, your old nature of sinner was cut out and you were given the nature of God, which is brand new. At that point, God no longer defines you by your sin, but he now defines you by the sinlessness of Jesus. That's what made new. Your spirit is made new in that instance. And then it goes on. Second Corinthians 521 says, he who knew no sin became our sin, so that we would be made the righteousness of God. So that instant of you saying yes to Jesus, when you have that new nature put into you, not only are you made new, but you were also made right. So that is the eviction of all shame in your life, because shame says you are someone who is wrong. God says in Christ, you are someone who is right. So made new and made right, those are two of the foundations of who you are in Christ. But then it also says that you are someone who is loved unconditionally. Now, that really didn't change because the Bible says before we were sinners, Christ died for us. So you're loved before you said yes to Jesus. But when you said yes to Jesus, the Bible says you became a child of God. So now you are loved as a child of God. You were brought into the family of God. And that's really from Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. It actually says that God adopted us into his family, and therefore we are accepted in the beloved. Speaking of Ephesians, I love Ephesians two ten. It says we are God's masterpiece. I mean, think about that. It says we are God's masterpiece. created new in Christ Jesus. So the way I think about that is when you said yes to Jesus, God took all of the parts of who you are, just as I was talking about earlier your personality, your style, your story. And he redeemed them. He redeemed them to take away the shame of them, to take away the pain of them, to take away the sting of them. And then he recreated them anew in Christ to do something with them, to do a good work, as as that scripture goes on to say, a good work that he had planned long before the world even began. So, and we could go on and on. I mean, there is so much that you could probably continue to learn a lifetime about who you are in Christ. But what you need to know right now, if you've said yes to Jesus, you are made new, you are made right, you are loved unconditionally as a child of God, you are God's masterpiece. Set apart, created anew and redeemed for a good plan. You have a purpose in Christ.
0: Well, Kyle, this begs the question, is everybody a child of God?
1: No, not everybody a child of God. Everybody who is a Christian is a child of God. But not everybody who is born is a child of God. So everybody is created in God's image. Genesis 1.27 says that humans were created in God's image. It reaffirmed that eight chapters later in Genesis 9.6, well after sin entered the world, it still said once again, humans are made in God's image. So whoever you are, the truest part, the deepest part of you, below the layers of sin, struggle, and shame, is the image of God. But you are not a child of God until you are adopted into his family through Christ. And that's that verse that I was mentioning earlier from Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, where it says that God chose us to be holy and without fault, in his eyes, he adopted us into his family in Christ. It's that adoption. It's, it's that what we call salvation, being born again, whatever phrase you want to use for it. That's what puts us into the family of God. That's what makes us a child of God. And that's then what gives us the inheritance that a child would have. Just as when your parents die, typically you receive what they had inheritance well as a child of god because of jesus's death you get his inheritance so that's also adds to your identity in christ as well so there's so much there that we could unpack and we could go on for hours i think probably doing a teaching on that but when you said yes to jesus made a child of god made new made right made whole made holy in jesus name
0: so this makes me remember what you said earlier this is the part two You mentioned that sinners sin, and once you become a born-again Christian, you don't have to put sinner in there. People who are non-Christians and even Christians say that we still sin. Do we still call ourselves sinners because we do still sin?
1: No, we don't. Yes, obviously we do still sin, but our nature is not that of a sinner anymore. When we sin, we are still sinning out of our out of our flesh, and out of this broken world that we're in, but we're, we're not sinning out of our spirit as we did before. Our spirit had a nature of sinner before. That was cut out of you, the Bible says, when you said yes to Jesus, and it was replaced with the nature of God. Well, the nature of God, as First John says, cannot sin so you do not sin out of your new nature anymore you do not sin out of the nature of being a sinner because that's not who you are anymore when you sin you sin out of out of the flesh and out of an unrenewed mind and because we live in a broken world but to still claim that you are a sinner after you've been saved is really to align yourself from or to align yourself with what you've been saved from So it is only really prophesying doom on yourself all the more. Because when you still say, I am a sinner, what do sinners do? They definitely still sin. So don't call yourself a sinner anymore. That's not who you are. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. And if you are going to have any chance of overcoming your unrenewed mind or overcoming the flesh. It's going to be out of the empowerment of being righteous in God, out of the empowerment of your new nature, not from aligning with your old nature. So don't call yourself sinner anymore. Call yourself the righteousness of God in Christ.
0: Kyle, and this brings us to the devil, because everything we've been talking about has been you know, how the Lord restored you from your shyness, from the depression, from all these bad thoughts you thought about yourself, but the negative roots from the devil. One, who is the devil? You know, people wonder, is the devil some red guy with a pitchfork and two horns on his head and who comes around in Halloween or is he a fictional character? Tell us about the devil because I mean, your book and even your first book silence Satan. And now you have this book, shut up devil. They're based on the devil. And I feel like Christians and I feel like everybody should know who the devil is because we need to know who the enemy is. Right. Tell us who in the world is the devil.
1: Yeah. Well, a couple names he has throughout scripture, at least a couple, but two big ones are Satan. That's really more Hebrew old Testament. And that means opposer. And he's the one that throws the obstacles in your way. He's the one that tries to get you to slip up, trip up, fall flat on your face. In the New Testament, in Greek, as I said earlier, his name is Devil, which is Diabolos, which means slander. He's the one that lies to you about who you are. And a lot of people think that he lives in his command center in hell, orchestrating all the evil in the world, but. That's not actually what the Bible says. The Bible says that he actually roams the earth. The enemy is actually on the earth, opposing and accusing. That's what he does, trying to get you to slip up and trip up. So then he can come and say, oh, look at what you did. Who do you think that you are? That's his accusations. Those are his slander. You see, he can't change God's mind. So instead, he works to change your mind. And that's really so much of the bulk of what what he does. The devil is defeated. He was defeated at the cross of Christ. So he doesn't have the power that he once did. He doesn't have the power to separate you from God anymore because the blood of Christ cancels his accusations. It has canceled the power of sin in your life. So that power no longer exists. So the only power the enemy has is what I kind of call the power of persuasion, And that's the power to try to convince you that you aren't who God says that you are, that you don't have what he says that you have. That's why so much of what I go through, especially in my book, Shut Up Devil, is all about overcoming what he does in your mind. Because this is where he starts. If he gets you in your mind, then he gets you in your mouth. And that just trickles down to the rest of you, to your behaviors, to how you live and everything else. It all starts with your thinking, with your believing. And in the book, as I go through who the devil is, I talk about what, what Peter said about who the devil is. He likened him to a roaring lion. In 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, watch out, stay alert for your great enemy, the devil, the slanderer, in other words, roams around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. And I go through the specifics of what the lion does and why particularly Peter likened him to a lion, which was not coincidental. But the short of it is that a lion has a small heart and lungs compared to the rest of the size of its body, which means that it is one of the slowest runners in the animal kingdom. A lion doesn't have stamina to last for very long, which changes how he hunts. He can't just see his victim off in the distance and decide to go after it the moment he sees it. No, he has to study it. He has to determine what is its weaknesses, what's the opportune time to go after it. And then he waits for that opportune time, and then the lion jumps up. He pounces and goes for the head, plays with the head a little bit, in order to get to its victim's mouth. A lion kills through suffocation it's the same thing with the enemy. He waits and studies our lives to determine what are our weaknesses. When he determines our weaknesses, those are what he uses at his opportune time to go for our minds, put in those questions, those doubts. Who do you think that you are? Did God really say? Are you even really a Christian? All in order to convince you that you aren't who God says that you are so that you'll talk about yourself that way. So that you'll align your mouth with his words instead of God's words, which will affect how you live. The devil, too, goes for the mind to get to the mouth to change the rest of your life. That's who he is as the slanderer.
0: Wow. Wow. And once he has the mind, he has you, correct?
1: Absolutely. Right. Until you learn how to take your position back, I mean, the position that is rightly yours in Christ, until you learn how to to really get your believing right, you only really rise to the level of who you believe you are. So if the enemy still convinces you, even though you've said yes to Jesus, if the enemy still convinces you that you are this horrible sinner, that you can't do anything right, that you're this poor, poor, pathetic person that just needs to go eat worms, then... That's going to be a lid. You're not going to think that you're worthy enough. You're not going to think that that God can use you to the level that he wants to use you. You will be limited by those lies. So you have to learn who you are, just as I had to do, what you have, and then defeat the enemy in your mind with those truths so that you can truly live up to the person that God already says that you are in Christ.
0: And you also mentioned in your book how we as human beings picture the devil as some really scary thing, right? But in your book, you said he's not even that. Tell us about that.
1: Absolutely. Even the prophet Isaiah, when he was seeing a glimpse of of the enemy, Said that we'll we'll look around and and we'll say is this the one that caused the nations to tremble? Is this the one that did all this stuff? Because we'll look at him realize and realize that he's he wasn't as big as we thought he was. His only threat is really in his volume, just like that lion once again. Even wildlife experts say I, I write about it in the book. Wildlife experts say that roar of the lion are mostly mock roars. They're meant only to intimidate but they're actually meaningless. And yes, the enemy's lies can be loud as they reverberate through our minds because he is reminding us of failures and he's reminding us of past regrets and present struggles. And those things can feel very loud, but they actually have no merit if you are in Christ because God calls you new, because God calls you right. So all they are is maybe reminders but they can't actually do anything to you. So the enemy really, he is a defeated foe. He's a sneaky defeated foe, but he is a defeated foe. And when you realize that and you take charge of your mind back from him, take authority over your mind back from him, then yes, he may still talk and he may still accuse, but those things are not gonna get into you like they once did. They're not gonna control their life or they're not going to control your life as they once did. So therefore the enemy becomes a whole lot smaller than he used to be. When you really, once again, I keep coming back to this, but when you really, once again, know who you are and what you have in Christ.
0: Kyle, you also mentioned, you said the devil knows when you're most vulnerable. How does he know you're vulnerable? When does he know you're vulnerable and You mentioned how he actually uses that to his advantage.
1: That's right. Yeah, the devil's not omniscient, which means he's not all-knowing, so we we can't think that he knows everything. But he has been doing this for a long time, and he and his minions, as I like to call them, would study our lives, and they know what we're weakest in, and they've, they've heard what people have said about us, and I think they can even recognize God's hand on people's lives as well. I think they can at least perceive in some way what God is doing in someone's life to kind of understand that this is where this person is probably headed, but this is where the weaknesses are. This is the times that they're most weak, and so the enemy tries to orchestrate opportunities to get us into those weaknesses and to get us into those times and remind us of those things to try to thwart what God has in our lives. And that's that's really, that's his role as Satan. And then his role as devil is to then accuse us of those things if we fall to them. And that's that's really the extent of his work in our lives. Get us to trip up and fall and then accuse us because we did
0: all of this right is speaking is the devil speaking to our mind right
1: yeah that's that's right because the mind is the control center of the rest of our bodies our mind is what controls our fingers moving our mouths moving it's it even is determines how we see things our mind determines everything so the enemy goes after like that lion he goes after our minds because it's the control center if he gets us in here Then he affects our talk, he affects our walk, and everything just flows from there.
0: So this brings us to the four steps of mind renewal, is what you call it. So take us through that because people are now wondering, okay, the devil's going after my mind a lot. I need a renewal of my mind. Say if they're a Christian right now, a a Christian is watching right now and they're saying that or a non-believer, you know, we will walk them through how to be born again. But how do they accomplish the four steps of mind renewal?
1: This is something that in my process that the Lord took me through, and I wrote about it in my book, Shut Up, Devil, and it comes from Romans 12, 2, which says to not be conformed by the pattern of the world. We talked about that earlier. Don't be conformed to the do to get to the achieve to succeed in all the system of the world, but be transformed, it says by the renewing of the mind. So that word transform there is metamorphosis. It's the change from one kind of thing into another kind of thing. So what Paul is saying there is that as you start to think right, renew your mind, as you start to think right, you will actually become who God says that you are. Like it'll, it, you'll be changed from the inside out. And the Lord took me through a process because I was saying to God like a decade into my faith, okay, you say I'm new, you say I'm accepted, but yet I'm not completely feeling it still. What more do I have to do? And so God said I needed to get my believing completely right. I needed to renew my mind. I needed to completely unprogram my mind, deprogram my mind from all of the stuff that we'd talked about earlier, and reprogram it with his truths. And that would would change me then the rest of the way from the inside out. And I call it this process, the four R's of mind renewal. The first is you read what God says about you in relation to what you're going through. So I was still dealing with some shame. So I needed to read what God said about me. That verse we've been talking about, 2 Corinthians 5.21, was a great verse. He who knew no sin took on our sins, so we are made right with Christ. Second R is reflect. And this is really a process of internalizing and identifying what, what that word says. I just would ask myself three questions. What does this truth mean about me? What does this truth mean about God? what does that all mean about my situations? So if the scripture I just read regarding shame says that he who knew no sin became my sin, so I am made right. What that says about me is I am made right. What that says about God is he did for me what I can't do for myself. He is so good. He is so loving that what he did on the cross made me right. What that means about my situation is that I don't, I don't need to fear that I'm wrong. I don't need to. It's as simple as that type of stuff. Then third R is rephrase. Now take all of that and turn that into a personal declaration. Get it to change your mouth. Get it to change your words so that you align your words with what God's word says. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am not wrong. And everybody's declaration is going to be different. It's going to be customized to who you are and your experiences. There's no wrong or right answer to any of these things, but that's where you actually speak that out loud over yourself. And that actually starts to work with God's design for your mind to actually like scientifically reprogram your mind so that those old pathways we talked about earlier start to be changed with new pathways that are based upon the truth of God's word, based upon his love, based upon his grace. And then the fourth R is repeat. So continue to do that. Go back to those reflections. Go back to those declarations. Make kind of a habit out of it. As often as you need to, you know, it takes at least a few weeks, they say, to create a habit. And that's because new pathways are being created in your brain. Well, it's the same with renewing your mind. In order to experience the boldness that you have because of the Holy Spirit in order to feel like you're the righteousness of God in Christ, in order to, you know, just see the manifestation of the things that God says that you are, you have to be intentional about renewing your mind to who he says that you are. And as you do that, things naturally really do change in you that affects how you talk and how you walk. So four R's, read, reflect, rephrase, and repeat. And I go through it much more in depth in the Shut Up Devil book as well. But that's the gist of it.
0: What do you say to those people who say, I don't like to talk about the devil. It's so scary. It's so bad. And let's just focus on Jesus, which is good to always focus on Jesus. But what do you say to those people who say, we shouldn't talk about the devil? We shouldn't talk about the devil and he's so scary one should we talk about the devil good question right and is the devil someone to fear
1: i always say i i don't like to obsess about the devil which may be funny because everything here has the devil's name in it but the way that i combat the enemy is by lifting up the truth of jesus i mean i point people to the cross That's the place of his defeat. I point people to God's word, which is more real than what you feel or what you fear or how you fell, all of the byproducts of the enemy. So you have to know, as Peter put it, you have to know some of the strategy of the enemy so that you're not outwitted by him. Too many of us, we're dealing with mind games and we're dealing with negative emotions and toxic thought and behavioral patterns because we... Think they're sourced in something else. We think maybe they're the product of the weather or the product of chemicals in the brain or whatever, when really, often they're the product of lies that we've been told. So, the way, as I've been saying, that you counter lies is with the truth of God's word. So, I really only like to spend as much time on the enemy as to let people know here's where your lies are rooted. That's the spiritual warfare. That's the enemy part. Here's how you combat that. That's Jesus. That's the word of God. That's really the extent that I like to talk about the enemy. And when you know, as we were saying earlier, when you know that the enemy is already defeated because of the cross and he is defeated in your mind, his work in your mind is defeated with the truth of God's word, then he really isn't scary. There's really nothing to fear one one simple thus saith the lord god said is enough to get him out
0: amen kyle okay so uh prior to this interview we had a conversation and i asked you i asked you when you gave your life to jesus did you try to change on your own so did you try not to be shy did you try um to be different and if so What happened from your own trying?
1: I did. I went through a long season of trying and even a lot of it was trying good things. I mean, trying spiritual principles and going through all these Christian self-help books and special prayer strategies and things which all have their place, but none of them can replace the grace of God and the power of God at work in your life. And so I really went through a time of making my Christian life all about trying to fix myself and trying to change myself. And that just messed me up all the more because your trying can only get you so far until you inevitably fail in some way, or the enemy is there telling you it's not enough. Look, you're still not changed enough. Look, try harder, try harder. And that becomes a hamster wheel which is maybe a great way to burn calories, but it's an excellent way to burn out and it's a horrible way to live. God didn't call us to, to live lives of trying to do anything. So what I ended up having to do is really surrender. Okay, Lord, this isn't working. All my efforts aren't working. And that's when God brought me back to that scripture we talked about, Romans 12 too which says be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Other versions say, let God change you into a new person by changing the way you think. But the part there that I had to really learn is it says, let God transform you. So yes, we have our part, which is to think on God's goodness, which is to think on his love, which is to kind of cultivate the right environment. But God is the one that really does the work. He's the one that does the growth. He's the one that does the deliverance. He's the one that does the change. I like to think of it as kind of like we are seeds. And a seed doesn't like strain and stress and pop out its own plant. No, a seed gets planted in the right soil. And it's the soil with the nutrition that's all outside of the seed that causes the seed to naturally do the growth that it was programmed for. So when you said yes to Jesus, the identity of Christ was planted on the inside of you. Your nature changed. You have everything that you need in Christ. In order to see that manifest, you don't try to produce it yourself with a bunch of effort and a bunch of striving. You simply plant yourself in an environment that is conducive, an environment that produces growth, which that is an environment focused on the word of God. It's as simple as remembering who you are and whose you are, that mind renewal process. And as you do that, things start to naturally happen over time. And that's what happened to me, as I finally stopped trying to work so hard at it and then beat myself up because my efforts weren't good enough and just started to remember God loves me. I am made right. Here's what this means about me. The change happened almost effortlessly out of that.
0: Wow, that is so good. That is so good. Now, I know we keep talking about your book, Shut Up Devil. Could you show us your book? And could you just elaborate a little more on what it's about? Because I feel like everybody watching this episode right now should seriously read this book. I mean, it is life-changing. I told Kyle earlier how the first chapter just got me hooked. I'm like, wow, I mean, this is some really good stuff. And on top of that, Kyle backs everything up with scripture and science. And for those of you who like science, you're gonna like this book. So Kyle, could you just tell us more about Shut Up, Devil?
1: Yes, the subtitle is Silencing the 10 Lies Behind Every Battle You Face. From my story and from my time in ministry, I've realized that just about every, every battle, as I say here, every mind game, from fear, anxiety, discouragement, you name it, comes down to root lies. Oftentimes we we try to deal with the symptoms and that lasts only for so long, but you got to get at the root. And the root are bad beliefs. Was in my life and I've seen it time and time again in so many others. So the first part of this book, it's split into two sections. The first part of this book talks about who the devil is and how he goes after you. Like a lion, as we talked about earlier, he goes after your mind to get to your mouth to change the rest of your life. Then we look at the specific ways he works into your mind and the kind of sneaky strategy, as I say it in the second chapter, that he, he has against your mind, how he gets in there. Then we go through how God designed your mind and how you can flip the enemy script and how you can really use God's word to renew your mind, to deprogram your mind from all of those lies with the truth of God's word, how to use your mind and your mouth to do that. So that is really the first part of this book. That's where we get into some of the science, even in the neuroscience and things like that, in a very practical and understandable way. The rest of the book then takes that principle that we learned and applies strategic truth to those lies to undo those lies and to reprogram and renew your mind. So I go through lies that we talked about. Lie number one, you're still a horrible sinner. Lie number two, God is punishing you. You are unlovable. You can't be forgiven. You should be afraid. You don't belong. There are 10 of them in here. It ends with the last one that you are disqualified. All things that the enemy whispers into us that causes us fear, causes us depression, causes us anxiety, causes us shame. When you start to confront those lies with the truth of God's word through your mind and your mouth, the enemy loses his grip on your life. And that's really what the book is here to show you how to do and help you out of really.
0: Amen. Kyle. So could you do us all a favor? Could you please pray for everyone hearing this, who hears the thoughts of the enemy, who thinks it's them talking, but it's really not talking. It's the enemy. Could you pray for them to to be free from them and know their identity in Christ and know their value in the Lord and to not give so much attention, attention to the devil, but attention and glory to God, but just know that the devil is there. So could you just pray for them, um, Because you were freed from depression, shyness, um, feeling that you were inadequate. So, could you pray for people who are watching who are feeling the way you're feeling and who just wants to be free and to give them confidence to say, Shut up, devil?
1: It would be my pleasure. I know that there are people watching here who you're constantly hearing these voices that you are too much of this or you are too little of that, you're not worthy you can't be loved, all of these things. I want you to hear what the word of God says. And Father, I just pray with your Holy Spirit right now that you would translate these words into words that would speak so uniquely to the people that are listening right now. God says that in Christ you are made new, that you are made right, that you are made whole, that you are his masterpiece that you are enough, because he is enough. And so, Father, right now, in Jesus' name, we just come against all of these lies that people have heard, lies when life had let them down, lies that they've heard from other people, lies that they've even told themselves from feelings and from fears and from failures. Father, may they know that they are not what they feel, what they fear or the way they fell. But Lord, may they know their true right identity in Christ, as one unconditionally loved, one made new Father. And God, I just pray that your truth, your truth would remain as as an ever-present reminder, Father, whenever things try to come against them to tell them otherwise, that your truth would rise up in them and that they would say, no, I am not accepting this. I do not have to accept this because God's word is more real than what I feel. I just pray that for you right now today. May God's word remain more real than what you feel in Jesus name. Amen.
0: Amen. Kyle Winkler, author of Shut up, devil. Thank you so much for this interview.
1: Oh, it was a pleasure, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me.